Hi guys, this is Grant. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the House of Magnus, the podcast where we're going to explore the villain, the sympathetic antagonist, and the sometimes anti-hero that is the master of magnetism. Now, if this is your first excursion into one of my podcasts, let me take a minute to introduce myself. Again, my name is Grant. I am 45 years old as of the time of this recording, March of 2020. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I am a enthusiast of plant-based fitness, and I've been reading comic books since I was seven years old. I've also been podcasting for about the past two years. In 2018, I started a show with my friend Herman Lowe from the Long Box of Darkness podcast called Into the Weird. And in that, we talked about Bronze Age Marvel comics that were on the trippier side of things, like Doctor Strange and Man-Thing and Morbius and all that. And I did that for about six months, but after some scheduling conflicts, I had to bow out. But our friend Billy Delicious has stepped in and taken my place, and the show is still going strong, and you should definitely go check that out. In May of 2019, I started the show that I would venture to say that I'm somewhat more well-known for. That is Sentinel of Liberty, a Captain America podcast. But as of a few days ago of this recording, I have temporarily put that show on hiatus, and I will go into why in just a few minutes. Now, if you are familiar with my previous work, you may be asking yourself, Grant, I thought you were the Captain America guy. What is up with the Magneto podcast? Well, it is very true. I am a Captain America guy, but my enthusiasm for Captain America is often dependent on my state of mind, and that can sometimes, and it's a pattern that I've noticed to be very true over the past few years, very dependent on the time of year. Now, from about the middle of April until about the end of November, I am all about optimism, and I'm super positive, and I have high hopes and expectations that we as a society will come together and overcome um, like income inequality and uh, social justice issues and all that good stuff. We'll, you know, we will get over our distrust of each other based on differences and everything will be good and fair and equal and accepting and progressive and all that good stuff. And during those time, that time of year, I can think of no hero that epitomizes this point of view better than Cap. However, from about the beginning of December until, again, until spring starts up again, I feel a lot more cynical and a lot less optimistic, uh, especially when I look around and... I watch the news and I read the news and I see that those of us that are even on the more on the side of things getting better are seem to be racing toward mediocrity in the face of authoritarian populism and I don't think mediocrity wins out against that so when I'm in the state of mind I just can't with cap because even though Cap is the first one to step forward when things get really bad, is the editorial mandate of Marvel that Cap never really goes out of the way to make the status quo better. And when I'm in this mood, 
I can think of no one that kind of epitomizes on a when he's having a good day <laughs> a character that epitomizes what I'm feeling than Magneto. Now, that being said, I do not condone violence. I especially do not condone any form of terrorism or anything like that. But there is a certain visceral satisfaction and entertainment to be had from reading and watching Magneto. Now, um, what can we expect from this podcast? I am going to be starting with the with Magneto in the early 1980s, which is a pattern that you may remember from my work in Sentinel of Liberty. I tend to start comics from where I started reading them as a kid, um, because Magneto in the 70s is just a maniacal villain. As Jason Venable, my friend from the Wolverine podcast, The Ghost Nick, uh, said recently, uh, during the 60s and 70s, Magneto was pretty much just Doctor Doom with magnet powers in a different cape. But once we get into the 80s, Claremont starts adding some nuance to the character, taking him from a maniacal villain to at least a sympathetic villain to an anti-hero and then back to villain status again. And then his cycle has gone up and down and up and down and up and down since then. And I think it's really interesting. Um, but we will start with the 80s. We'll work our way forward. We're not going to touch on every appearance of Magneto and everything, but we're going to touch on definitely what I consider to be the highlights and eventually work our way forward to where we are now, which is Hox Pox and beyond. But it'll probably take a long time to get there. So, um, oh, and a few more bits that I need to throw in. When I originally conceived of this show, I was going to call it Magneto Was Right. And... If you're not familiar, that is the slogan worn on a t-shirt by the character Quentin Quire during Grant Morrison's run on the X-Men in the early 2000s. And as my friend Al Sedano from the Resurrections and Adam, uh, excuse me, Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast uh, said to me, I must have been in a mood when I came up with that idea. It felt right at the time. But as I started doing a little back reading, because I will admit there are some big gaps in my X-Men knowledge. Most of them involve the 1990s. And as I started reading, it's like, well, that certainly isn't right, but I can see where he's coming from. So my second choice was Magneto wasn't wrong. But as I kept reading, I'm like, oh, well, perhaps we should just uh, do away with any assumptions of right and wrong and just talk about the character and not his intentions or ethics. So that's that. Um, and that's where I landed on House of Magnus. Uh, we are, by the way, going to be touching eventually on the House of M, which I have not read before, so this will be a journey for us both. Um, secondly, our opening theme music is El Segador's by the band A Sound of Thunder, and they were gracious enough to allow me permission to use their song for the show. Um, I think they are amazing, and... You just can't have a podcast about the Master of Magnetism without good metal. So uh, if you think they sound good, definitely go check them out. So I'm going to take a break, and when we come back, we will start on our first story for this show. So for this first story, we're going to be talking about Uncanny X-Men number 150. And that is the story where... Chris Claremont first started the transition of Magneto from an outright maniacal villain to at least a sympathetic antagonist. 
But we're not actually going to start with 150. We're going to start with Uncanny X-Men number 149, which came out in September of 1981. Now, why am I doing that? Well, there is a little bit of stuff in this issue that kind of sets the groundwork for 150, but that's not really the reason I'm doing it. The reason that I'm covering 149 first is because this is my first real comic that I actually really got into. Um, I'd been into superheroes since I was like four years old, which would have been the very late 70s with stuff like the Super Friends and the Spider-Man 60s cartoon and the Wonder Woman TV show and the Hulk TV show and all that. And I had a few comic books before then. I had a couple issues of Spider-Man and an issue of Legion of Superheroes and an issue of Justice League of America. But I wasn't really into them. I'm like, they're, these are fun. They're okay. I read them once or twice. Well, I wouldn't say read them because I probably couldn't read. But I didn't fascinate over them. I had, like, my grandma read them to me, like, once and just gave up. But I got 149 off the, off the well, not the spinner rack, but the magazine rack at a convenience store in 1981. I would have been seven years old by the time this came out. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. Like, my grandma read it to me one time. And even though I was still working on my reading skills, I must have quote unquote read this like a bajillion times. Like by the time I lost it, I had completely worn out the cover. I, it's not a great issue, but I genuinely love it for, it's one of the few things of childhood nostalgia that I hold on to with a death grip. But the cover is actually really cool. It's a group of X-Men standing in this cavern that has a bunch of technological equipment covered in ice and then in the background you have this like big scary rock face thing in the front you have colossus in the middle and then you have kitty pride in her super duper outlandish outfit that we'll talk about we have wolverine to her right and then to colossus's left we have storm and nightcrawler and one of the reasons this was so significant to me as a kid was this was the first time I ever had a comic book that featured characters that weren't in a movie, a TV show, or a cartoon. You think about it, I had Spider-Man, so you had you know the cartoons, you had those live-action movies, you had the Justice League, which had all the you know characters from the Super Friends, and well, I I take that back. I had that Legion of Superheroes one, but it didn't really do anything for me. I just I dismissed it pretty quickly because I was it was just. It wasn't for me. But yeah, this was this was like, wow, these are people that the other kids in school don't know about. So I thought that was a lot of fun. So it opens with Professor X in his little computer cave. And he is, it gives us a very handy flashback to let us know everything about Magneto that you didn't already know, which at the time, I didn't. So this was super helpful for me. It talks about how he first fought the original X-Men and how he got the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants together and how he was de-aged by Alpha the Ultimate Mutant and then re-aged by Eric the Red and then how he fought the uh, all-new, all-different X-Men in his volcano lair. And I loved this these couple opening pages when I was a kid. Not not solely for the fact that my grandpa, when I was a little kid, looked just like Professor X. He was a tall, thin, bald, white guy with peaked eyebrows. And I swear he wore this exact shirt with the pens in the pockets that uh, Charles is wearing in this one. 
um, and that was a big deal for me. So Kitty phases in through the wall with her outlandish outfit, and it is um, a gold full arm, full length unitard with a pair of green shorts and a red and blue lightning bolt tank top and an X-Men belt and a pair of white and purple and black and gray uh, knee socks or thigh socks or something and then a pair of roller skates and then like a like a late 60s early 70s jean gray mask and it is completely bonkers and her phasing through the wall messes up all the computers so professor s gets mad and he sends her out to where the x-men are fixing up the danger room and then they they give her a hard time because she's sulking and then Professor X goes to me, my X-Men, and they meet up, and they all get on the Blackbird, and they are going to Magneto's old volcano lair to see if there's anything, any clues as to what might be going on with Magneto, and Kitty stows on board, and so they go, and they check out the volcano lair, and uh, Nightcrawler finds the head of the robot called Nanny that Magneto built to care for the x-men's basic needs when he had them in these like paralysis chairs in the volcano layer back in the day and there's a scene where wolverine pops his claws for the first time in the issue and shreds the robot head and when i was man when i was seven years old i thought that was the coolest thing ever i was like man he's got wrist claws and i was like man that's just neat and i thought they were um, I thought they were like part of his gloves because I didn't really know anything about Wolverine and I wouldn't figure out that they weren't part of his gloves until like the like early 80s oh hot new like handbook of like weapons and paraphernalia came out and had like a diagram of Wolverine's skeleton with the claws up in it and I th- but still when I was a little kid I thought that was rad so they go off and Storm is reminiscing about how after the whole thing with with Magneto's volcano lair back in the day, most of the X-Men escaped to the Savage Land and they had this whole thing with Garrock, who was this guy who's this kind of skinny guy who looks like he's made out of rock, but Garrock fell down a volcano and Sword trying to save him, but she got hit by some falling debris and she panicked and she flew off and she let Garrock fall seemingly to his death. Um, on that page, which would be page 12 of the digital copy, um, on the bottom, there's three panels with uh, Storm communicating by a radio with Wolverine, and the shot of Wolverine and his mask there looked really neat. I really, really liked Wolverine when I was a little kid. Um, so Kitty and Colossus are off doing their thing, and they get ambushed by Garrock, who is now like 12 feet tall, and the right half of his body looks like um, hardened uh, lava, but the right side of his body looks like it's made out of crystal with this like green techno loincloth thing. And so he busts up some lava, and lava's coming down, and Storm uses her powers to freeze the lava so nobody dies, but then Colossus gets frozen. And so there's a whole lot of fight, 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 fight. The rest of the issue is the X-Men fighting Garrock and not doing a very good job. But then Kitty faces through his body, which for some reason hurts Garrock, even though it doesn't hurt anybody else. And he falls to his death, seemingly, again. So, and then they go home. But then the epilogue, we have 
uh, Scott Summers, who has washed up on this mysterious island and lost his visor and his special sunglasses, and he and his girlfriend, uh, Lee, uh, have um, been found by this mysterious benefactor, and he's given them bonkers costumes. And Scott is wearing a pair of red tights and a pair of blue swashbuckler boots, and then this octopus tunic thing which looks really cool and then Lee comes out and um, she's wearing a like one golden boot on her left foot and then this thing that kind of entwines about her left her right leg and thigh and then it kind of looks like a, a bathing suit only it doesn't cover her boobs and then she just has a cape that covers her boobs and then this headdress thing that looks like the sun and a pair of butterfly wings but she looks really pretty anyway um but then their mysterious benefactor comes out and dun 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 it's magneto and he says you can take off that silly oh yeah uh cyclops has put on a blindfold so he can pretend to be blind so he doesn't you know destroy everything with his eye blast and magneto says uh, as long as you as long as you remain my guest, your vaunted optic blast will not function. You are quite helpless and completely at my mercy. And you can almost hear, ha, 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 ha. But yeah, that's 149. And like I said, I loved this issue as a kid. It's, like I said, probably not great. I've listened to a bunch of X-Men podcasts. And everyone that's reviewed this issue says, eh, not, it is what it is. Um, but it says, you know, next issue, I, Magneto. And when I was a kid, I didn't really get how shipping comic books works worked. So I think I started, like I said, I got this when I was seven. And probably about the time I was eight or nine, I said, man, I want to find the next issue. I want to read I, Magneto. And every time my grandpa would take me to the convenience store to buy comics, I was always confused and upset that issue 150 wasn't there. But I did eventually get it um, when I was in junior high at a small comic book convention so i'll be right back and then we'll talk about uncanny x-men number 150 the cover of x-men uncanny x-men number 150 is cyclops squaring off against magneto and cyclops is shooting his optic blast at magneto and magneto was blocking them with waves of magnetic energy which is, even though from a different angle, somewhat reminiscent of the cover of X-Men number one, way back in the 60s. And then on the floor, um, kind of between and in front of them, is Storm, who is kneeling on the floor, crying and holding the battered and seemingly lifeless body of Kitty Pride. The creative team on this book, by the way, is the same on both books. It's Chris Claremont Writer, Dave Cockrum, Joseph Rubenstein, and Bob Wyacek Artists. Tom Orzakowski and Jen Simic letters, Glennis Wynn colorist, Louise Jones editor, and Shooter, of course, is editor-in-chief. It opens with Magneto saying a holographic transmission to the world's leaders, telling them that he is tired of them having the capability to destroy the world a million times over, and he gives them to, and the ultimatum of disarm or else. Cyclops calls him out on it and says, why are you doing this? And Magneto says, of course, this is for the good of mankind. And um, Magneto basically says with that because the governments of the world spend over trillions of dollars on armaments a year, if they all disarm, they'll have nothing better to spend money on than curing hunger, disease, and poverty. Which, 
Okay, we'll come back to that. But um, Cyclops says, basically, the mutants will rule the world and you'll rule, rule the mutants. And Magneto says, yes, that's the way it should be. Um, but then Man Magneto goes, hey, by the way, what's up with the, this Lee Forrester lady you've been hanging out? What happened to Jean Grey? And Cyclops tells uh, Magneto how Jean seemingly died on the moon. And Magneto says he is sorry, to which Cyclops gets very offended and says, Spare me your hypocrisy, Magneto. And Magneto says, She was an honorable foe, Cyclops, as are all the X-Men worthy of respect. I cared for her. I grieve for her. I know something of grief. Search throughout my homeland. You will find none who bear my name. Mine was a large family, and it was slaughtered without mercy, without remorse. Let's put a pin in that. So then... Um, an alarm goes off and some missiles are being shot at um, Magneto's island headquarters which is this very elaborate looking uh, facility with a very kind of nautical theme to it and there is an inhibitor field that not only neutralizes uh, but neutralizes Cyclops' power so he can't blast them out of the sky but Magneto's power still work and he disarms the circuitry and lets them fall into the ocean but Magneto is not done because there is a submarine nearby the Russian submarine nearby that is of course made out of metal so Magneto does what he does and he short circuits all the systems in the submarine and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean where the pressure will undoubtedly crush them to death now, uh, Magneto was very offended by this, so he sends his hologram to the leaders of Russia, and he uses magnetism to set off a volcanic eruption below, uh, from below the streets of the city of Varikino, a newly expanded industrial center nestled in a Siberian river valley. And he uses his power to slow the flow of lava to allow the population to evacuate, even though that isn't really shown in the art. But the city itself is destroyed. After Cyclops and Lee Forrester comfort each other, we switch over to a scene of the X-Men flying back home on their Blackbird, and they fly over the area of Magneto's Island and the Blackbird hits the inhibitor field which knocks everything out. Um, Storm can't use her powers, the plane sinks, everybody bails out. Uh, Cyclops goes, well I don't need uh, breathing apparatus because I can just turn metal and I don't know, I don't need to breathe. But then he hits the rest of, the, he hits the inhibitor field and he turns human. And he starts to drown, so they get him back up to the surface, and they give him CPR, and he's fine. Uh, they run into Lee. Um, they go exploring about. They find Cyclops. And this part I've always thought was really funny. So, you know, they're like, what are we going to do, Psych? We don't have powers. And Cyclops says, we all possess skills that have nothing to do with being mutants. I'm a strategist. Storm was a thief. Nightcrawler is an acrobat. Colossus has his natural strength. Kitty, her intelligence. And Wolverine has his claws. So I think it's funny that of every quality that Wolverine brings to the table, specifically being like probably one of the best hand-to-hand -hand fighters in the Marvel Universe, all he really has going for him is his claws, which is just kind of typical Cyclops. 
So we learn that it wasn't Magneto's magnet powers that set off the volcanic eruption in Russia. He has developed a device that can tap into Earth's core and create uh, shenanigans like that. So they go looking for it, and their mission is not only to take down Magneto, but to destroy his device as well. And they find it in a very uh, tractor uh, tractor beam generator on the Death Star looking scene as drawn by Dave Cockrum. So Cyclops, Wolverine, Colossus, and Nightcrawler go after the... Um, the earth manipulating device while Storm, Kitty, and Lee go to look for the inhibitor field generator. Um, Kitty can't figure out how to shut off the inhibitor field and nobody can figure out how to turn off the, the earth device. So Wolverine smash, uh, pretty much Wolverine and, uh, um, Nightcrawler destroy the earth device and... Storm smashes the inhibitor field generator. Now, before Storm does that, there is a scene where she wanders into Magneto's bedroom and she sees a knife laying there and she considers killing the sleeping Magneto, but she can't. And Magneto wakes up and blasts her. And there is a really cool scene where Magneto is sleeping, probably naked, and he wakes up and he is pulling his costume, um, which I one would assume it now is metallic in nature, to him bit by metallic bit, which is really cool. Uh, I have to admit, before I never before I read this, I never really thought about his costume working like that, but it is really neat. Um, Magneto reaches out with his power and uh, hijacks Professor X um, from his boat where he is nearby. Uh, but Magneto just puts the the Earth device back together. Um, and so Kitty Pride she runs off while the X-Men fight Magneto and she is going to she scrambles the computers uh, for all the equipment with her phasing powers. Magneto finds out about it. And this part doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Magneto grabs Kitty, Kitty phases, which disrupts Magneto's natural electronic field so he zaps her with a supposedly lethal charge of electricity. Um, I guess the leap of logic there is because magnetism and electricity have some similarities in common. But that leads to the scene where Magneto is cradling Kitty's body and he says, uh, why did you not understand? Magna, my beloved wife, did not understand when she saw me use my powers. She ran from me in terror. I did not, it did not matter that I was defending her, that I was avenging our murdered daughter. I swear then that I would not rest until I created a world where my kind, mutants, could live free and safe and unafraid, where such as you, little one, could be happy. Instead, I have slain you. And Storm rushes in, and... Magneto keeps soliloquizing. I remember my own childhood, the gas chambers as Auschwitz, the guards joking as they herded my family into their death. As our lives were nothing to them, so human lives became nothing to me. So um, Storm is ready to kill Magneto. And he says, uh, he says, as a boy, I believed. As a boy, I turned my back on God forever. Kill me if you wish, Windrider. I will not stop you. So he is, he is distraught over what he thinks he's done. And he is ready to let Storm kill him. 
and only when she then kind of sees his humanity does she she decide not to kill him um, but he decides not to enact his vengeance on the world and lets them go and then the X-Men leave and they have a nice little party on the beach dun, 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 the end so let's talk about this issue give me just a second and I'll be right back Okay, so let's discuss the negative and positive polarities of this comic book. First, the negative. And this is completely subjective on my part. I am not a big fan of Dave Cockrum. Um, I know, <laughs> which is ironic because you know, I love issue 149, but honestly, that is for nostalgia's sake. Nostalgia's sake. Um... I don't like how a lot of the panels in this issue look, even though I like how things were done in them, which I guess doesn't make sense. I don't like his visual aesthetic, but I like his storytelling ability. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so, for example, and this was just a kind of a convention of how Magneto looks at the time, on the page where he is addressing the world leaders via hologram, the fact that there, there, there's no neck piece to his costume, um, Magneto's costume, it adds to the villainous aspect of him, which is the point I, I get at the time. But it also looks kind of goofy. Um, like I said, it is kind of like Jason put it, uh, just a Magneto with a different cape and a helmet. Um, when he takes his helmet off, I hate the way Cockrum draws Magneto's hair. It looks like an old lady perm. And so combined with the fact that Magneto is supposed to be an older gentleman, he looks like a very severe B. Arthur <laughs> to me. Or the collector, same thing. But I don't like it. Um, and just a lot of this comic is just fighty fight. Um, like especially after the X-Men get on board and like I said Cyclops is kind of condescending when it comes to Wolverine's like oh everyone else has these innate skills that they learned and you have these claws that were foisted upon you by a shadowy government agency and that's really all you've got going for you so I don't really care for that um, and I know numerous people have brought this up that Cockrum tends to kind of sexualize 14-year-old Kitty a bit, um, especially on the last page of the story where they're all having their little campfire picnic, but, you know, Kitty in just her T-shirt and a pair of either girls' underwear or bikini briefs is a little icky. Um, Storm looks really good all throughout this, um, I have to admit. But there's another panel where uh, Professor X is on a boat uh, with somebody else, uh, with Moira and Carol Danvers. And let's see, it's the bottom of page 25, the digital copy. So Carol's standing there and she's got on a pair of shorts or pants and they're kind of low cut. And then she's got like a button up shirt that's tied uh, you know, below her, her breasts. And Carol's waist is thinner than her neck, so I don't like that. Um, but that's just a, a gaff. But 
Um, so yeah, like I said, I the story's okay. The arts, the storytelling in the art is okay. I like I said, I just don't care for Cockrum's visual aesthetic. Now, on to the positive. Even though I don't care for Cockrum's work in general, I really, really like his Storm. Um, Storm was probably my second comic book crush as a kid. The first being uh, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman. Um, but yeah, I, I love his Storm. She's so pretty. Um, and I love her hair and just everything about her looks great. Um, I do, again, like how Wolverine's cow looks when Cockrum draws it. I love um, Magneto's island base. Um, on Jane Miles Explained the X-Men, they refer to it as Octopusheim. It looks really cool. I, I think it's. I think eventually it's revealed to be Lemurian. Maybe Atlantean. I don't think so, though. I think it's supposed to be Lemurian because they have more of a kind of Cthulhu cult vibe to them with the serpent crown and all that. So I think that's what it's supposed to be. I could be wrong. Um, if I am, just shout out at me. It may be that Magneto just really likes octopuses and stuff. But yeah, that's that. Um, also, obviously, the big draw on this comic is Magneto's dialogue when it comes to his his the personal trauma of his life. Uh, you know, when you, anyone who's devoted their life to smiting Nazis is okay in my book to a certain degree. Um, just for that fact, um, even though everything else they may do is pretty awful, and I, I would have to condemn them to that effect. But yeah, his his dialogue about his family dying in Auschwitz and his his uh, wife and child being killed when he first uh, displayed his mutant powers is just just really good stuff, and it's what starts the transition from him being a maniacal villain to at least a sympathetic villain. So for that, I do appreciate this comic, even though I don't necessarily enjoy it a lot. Um, like I said, I got 149 when I was like six or seven years old, and I didn't get this one until I was probably 11 or 12. And you know, by then the artistic style of the book had moved on. First, it went to Paul Smith during the middle of the the Brood saga, and on to there from um, John Romita Jr., whose art in the 80s I absolutely love. And I think maybe Sylvestri had started working on the X Men by the time I picked up this issue. So I think if I'd read it when I was a younger kid, I would have more fondness for it. But because the storytelling style and the artistic style of the book had evolved by this point, it seemed it just it feels a little jarring to my sensibilities from when the first time I first got it and to them now. But all in all, it's a decent story. It's just not my favorite. So that about does it for this first episode. I hope you guys like it. Um, next episode, I'm going to jump straight into God Loves, Man Kills. So you can probably expect a more somber tone for the next episode. Uh, for the near future beyond that, I'm going to be... I'm not going to do every appearance in every of every issue with Magneto in it ever. I'm going to kind of jump around a bit and touch on what I think of the more significant uh, appearances. 
probably after God Love Man Kills, I'll be jumping straight over Secret Wars with probably an acknowledgement of some things in there and his time with the New Mutants and going straight into the Trial of Magneto. Um, I'll be doing the Savage Land adventure from 1991, I think. 1990, 1991. Um, I'll be doing the 90s which will be a journey for me because a lot of that is a blank slate a little bit of the Morrison run Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to talk about his retconned appearance at the end of the Morrison run because that's not technically Magneto even though it was originally written to be that way I don't know, I'll think about it um, and then you know, House of M and so forth and so on from there. I'm looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to getting into the later 2000 stuff, especially uh, when he you know comes onto Uncanny X-Men and X-Men Legacy. That's probably what I'm most excited about. But in the meantime, I've got a new Twitter account for the show. It's at Magneto Podcast. I can't believe no one else has a Magneto Podcast, but there it is. Um, and boy, that was an easy, easy Twitter handle to take. But if you want to hit me up, I would love your feedback. And I'll think of a cool outro line later. But until then, see ya.